Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Good morning. Hello, this is Larson Hicks. Uh, welcome to the Got a Minute podcast with uh, with Pastor Rich Lusk and me, Larson Hicks. It's good to have you today. We're really excited to have a special guest with us. Uh, we've got David Bonson, um, and David is the uh, is the head of uh, Bonson, um, the Bonson Group, and uh, and is an economist and a and a thinker and a, a financial. Um, guru, uh, among other things, uh, really a, a man of many talents. So we're we're thrilled to have uh, have you on the show, Mr. Bonson. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me, and thank you for the kind words. Much appreciated. Yeah, yeah, great, great to have you, David. Really appreciate your work. Uh, of course, I was I've been a big fan of your your dad's work too. Uh, I studied philosophy in graduate school and uh, your father's work on the history of philosophy uh, and of course all of his work in apologetics was incredibly helpful for me uh, as well as of course his um, the debates he used to have with atheists um, and occasionally um, I know your dad would have a, a debate lined up with an atheist who would be too scared to show up so <laughs> I always thought yes. that was interesting yes <laughs> So lo- love your work and, and your dad's work as well. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, well, before, just just for the sake of listeners who maybe are, are not as familiar with you and your work, um, could you tell us a little bit just about your background, David, and, and, and kind of what you're up to these days? Uh, certainly. As Pastor Rich referenced, my late father was um, Dr. Greg Bonson, and, and he... Uh, was a profound influence on me in much of the same categories of what uh, Rich was talking about in philosophy, apologetics. Um, My own career path was outside of pastoral and academic ministry, but nevertheless, I do view very seriously uh, the work I do in economics and um, in the marketplace as an extension of the same theology and same worldview that um, in a very uh, Kuyperian sense Mm -hmm. recognizes uh, Christ as Lord of all areas of life. And I do believe that my view of a sort of kingdom theology is necessarily integrated to how I view capital markets, Uh how I believe in wealth stewardship, and then also what I believe about vocational calling. Uh And so there is an overlap between what I do for a living and the um, teaching and influence and foundational upbringing of my late father. Uh, So I run a company called The Bonson Group. Uh, We manage a, a little over $4 billion uh, as a private, as an independent private wealth firm and doing financial planning, estate planning, tax planning, investment management, uh, really um, the whole kind of uh, suite of financial related services. Um, but uh, prior to that, I was managing director at Morgan Stanley, one of the larger investment banks on Wall Street, and built out a, a large business there. And I left and, and started my own firm um, over eight years ago now. So I reside with my wife and three kids, um, half the time in New York City, half the time in Southern California. We go back and forth, and um, this is kind of the life I chose. I love it. One of the things that strikes me, and, and it's in, encouraging to me, uh, and, and I think should be for, for others in our, in our circles, is there's a, 
there's a a sense of urgency that I think a lot of people have about seeing their theology work itself out through culture and through the world around them. And, and I think, um, and I think that's healthy, but, but one of the things I try to encourage people is that this is a generational project, you know, and seeing, seeing the fruit of your dad's work in economics and philosophy and, and, and the gospel and seeing how generationally you've taken the ball and carried it forward. You know, your, your dad didn't necessarily have to apply, you know, see every last bit of, of the things he was teaching applied in his lifetime or, or in his life. But, but, uh, anyway, I think it's, I think it's encouraging. Uh, it should be encouraging for parents that, Hey, you, you just, just because you've got, um, you don't, you don't see, uh, the world around you changing in, in, uh, drastic ways overnight. Um, you know, this is a this this thing we're doing. This project we're involved in is going to bear fruit uh, gener- over over generations. So anyway, I think that's really encouraging. Well, I, I agree with you. I think that um, the same is true for for not just you know various aspects of um, my applied theology in in my dad's legacy, but even a lot of the things that I care about now, I don't view as me finishing what dad started, but me starting various things that I um, hope will be finished into the future as well. I'm very passionate about uh, worldview-minded Christians restoring some sort of uh, coherent understanding of both wealth and particularly of work and marketplace engagement. And um, I think that it's maybe one of the areas, there's a good list of areas where I think the church is pretty off these days. But I'm not sure that I could think of many that on a practical basis of day-to-day living yeah. are more skewed than um, what I think is our flawed view and teaching of work. Yeah. And yet I'm not totally sure that whether I have two days left on earth or, or five decades left, I'm, right. I'm you know getting close to 50 years old. And so I suppose it could be either way or somewhere in between. Right. But whatever time left God has for me here on earth, I don't know that I'll, I'll finish that job, but I agree with you that yeah. hopefully, hopefully there will be some kind of ongoing effort, you know, yeah. that brings yeah. about multi generational improvement. So you mentioned you mentioned um, work and money specifically as two areas that that you you feel uh, the church is is kind of deficient, and I would I would say especially it seems like the evangelical church in America. We've got a really, you know, the best you're going to get, it seems, in turn, if you ask a pastor about money is, well, go check out Dave Ramsey, you know, and, and, and my experience with Dave Ramsey is he basically teaches on like one Bible verse, maybe two, you know, it's, it's don't get into debt, you know, and, uh, or, you know, get out of debt basically is the, is the, is the basic message, which is a good message. It's a good place to start, but it's disappointing that that's kind of the best we've got, you know, it seems in evangelical America that most most churches don't really have a lot to offer their people in the way of teaching on money beyond just Dave Ramsey, you know? Yeah, and I agree that I think Dave Ramsey has some good things to say about um, getting out of debt when someone's in it. I don't think he's particularly worldview conscious in the way yeah. that he, he goes about it. But but the, that's I don't think there's anything particularly impractical. But what is the assumption in, in Dave Ramsey as a resource and even us going there. Um, it's that Christians don't have wealth. 
the Christians' financial problems are always debt-related yeah. or poverty-related or scarcity, that there's not an abundance issue to deal with. Right. See, this is, I think, the biggest problem is, of course, if there's young college kids or gra college graduates or young newlyweds and they've run up some credit card debt, uh, if a pastor needs Dave Ramsey to tell him to pay off the debt, then, you know, that, he's a good resource. Sure. Dave Ramsey has made um, tens of millions of dollars telling people not to get out of how to get out of debt. And I right. think he deserves that. Yeah. But I got to say, um, I think there's a much worse thing that happens hmm. prevalently in the evangelical church, which is when there is abundance, the guilt that is attached to that mm -hmm. or the pivot. Mm -hmm. That, okay, you don't need to feel guilty. We're not going to do a 1970s Ron Sider message. Mm -hmm. We are going to now talk about the church building fund. Right. And there's a sort of dualism that has been, used to be, I would say, implicit. I think it's become explicit, baked into Christian teaching, which is that, you know, it's okay you can accumulate wealth, but then now we need to figure out how to convert it into some ministry focus and lo and behold that often entails the church's own financial needs itself as opposed to a broader understanding of the real incredible kingdom impact that does come from the act of the wealth building itself meaning entrepreneurial endeavors one's calling uh, vocational work and the general creation mandate of growing and stewarding the resources that god has created the world with and so I think that the, um, the, the church's message is flawed, not only what they may be doing, but often what they're not doing. Good. That's really good. David, I really enjoyed your book, Crisis of Responsibility. Uh, I guess it's been out about five years now, and it covered the 2008 uh, financial crisis. And I really liked the way you looked at it and analyzed it. And uh, obviously, one of the things that you're getting at is that we have, just as the title indicates, a crisis of responsibility. People who don't want to take responsibility for their actions and, and uh, often using, you know, say, the state to uh, mitigate the consequences of irresponsible actions. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm wondering, do you think we've made any progress in resolving that crisis? It doesn't really look like it to me, but I wonder what you see uh, from, from where you are. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the, the crisis of responsibility that you're addressing goes far beyond just economics. Seems to me that was a, a symptom um, of this crisis, and the crisis really has theological and spiritual roots. I wonder if you could speak to that. Well, I, I agree that um, it goes beyond just the financial economic realm. And I think that was sort of the, the intent of the book, which I guess now it's been out six years and I was writing it seven and eight years ago, um, that it's it's a broader cultural milieu, uh, that there is a underlying moral and spiritual deficit that then manifests itself in various aspects of culture, including financial and economic and I'm not sure that we've made any progress whatsoever in the particular issue of blame casting. I think that the polarization in the political realm of blame casting has gotten even deeper. Those that are inclined to have a heavy disdain for the state um, are more inclined to blame the state for problems. And uh, those that are inclined to blame the private sector or or some element of of society that one doesn't like they're more inclined to blame as well and that's where i get to by the conflict uh, by the crisis of responsibility that 
it has to do with blame casting. Mm. Um, not that uh, there can't be something bad in a trade deal with China or there can't be something bad in a government policy or in, in a particular action of a corporate actor or Wall Street actor. There, there can be bad and wrongdoing in all these different domains. But the notion that those things are um, uh, effectively determinative of what the course of our lives will be is what I fundamentally disagree with. Mm -hmm. I think overcoming adversity, overcoming injustice, overcoming um, sometimes just unfortunate circumstances, that that is kind of our calling in life. Yeah. And it was more or less what the assumption was for a long time that people who had happy and fulfilling lives were in the business of overcoming uh -huh. various difficulties and unfortunate circumstances. And we've converted it into a place where um, we really thrive on self-pity. And I think yeah. it's a, a spiritual malady. Yeah, you're, you're dead right there. I, I recorded a, on my channel a, a video recently about, about being bored at work and, and this you talked about how you know some of these economic issues uh, or, or at least just general general issues in the church about money are, are not just are not really just money things. it's a spiritual thing and, and I've, I've encountered people in you know, people working in the government sector. We've got a lot of defense contractors in this in this community. Uh, but I think the same is true of people working for large corporations. There, there, there frequently can be this um, sense that, um, you know, almost like the definition of a good job is a job that pays well but doesn't require much work and doesn't carry much responsibility. Like that, that seems to be a fairly common way that that people think about how to define a good job uh, and. And I know you're writing a book on on this topic. Um, what what do you think's going on there? Well, I, by the way, totally agree with you. I do think that at various degrees of self consciousness and sometimes uh, explicit uh, expression of that sentiment, that that's exactly where uh, people are. That uh, a good job is defined usually around how little of it has to be done. And if you if you pull back a little bit. Even um, the fundamental purpose of work, not a in the micro, you know, how one evaluates a particular job, I think right. fits to the way you just described it. But even in the macro, the way one views the concept of a career mm -hmm. that we more or less teach societally. And this is something that um, I have a whole chapter in the book I'm working on now about the way in which the financial services industry that I work in has marketed this concept of retirement. The implicit yeah. message, the implicit message for decades in American life is the purpose of work is to not have to do it anymore. Right. right. Work to a point where you no longer need to work. Right. I, I not only think it's preposterous on its face mm -hmm. um, teleologically and uh, economically, for that matter, in terms of the downward pressure on productivity it represents – but I think it's existentially and psychologically um, pitiful. I think yeah. it is incredibly depressing Amen. to think about the idea that what we're doing is just something we do for the purpose of not having to do it anymore. Right. And so the notion of working to a point of taking a 30-year vacation is um, uh, it, it sure seems logical to me that one would therefore celebrate a job where they can hide, don't have to do much, th things like that. It's one of the... 
the byproducts of people that do not really celebrate entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. Why can't an entrepreneur hide or get away with not doing much? Because they have skin in the game and they're going to go out of business. Right. But, but, you know, we saw it when Elon Musk fired 70% of the people at Twitter. And I, um, I've updated my analogy to that in the last few months. But from in 2008, I will never, ever forget. I believe it was November 12th, 2008. It was a Sunday night. And they announced that Citigroup was laying off 20% of their workforce, 50,000 people. They had 250,000 employees and 50,000 of them would not be going to work the next day. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, ATM machines aren't going to work tomorrow. There's going to be, you know, some sort of really just palpable, detectable um, uh, issue and nothing changed whatsoever. And throughout the financial crisis, when unemployment eventually got to above 10 percent and people were saying that I can't believe it's not coming back to five. All I could think was how incredibly gracious God was that it wasn't going to 20 because I'm quite convinced that 10 percent of Americans are doing almost nothing at their yeah. jobs. Every day. <laughs> yeah. And, and and now you see things that sort of validate this empirically, the amount of time that is spent on Google and YouTube and Facebook at at people's jobs and so forth. People know when they're hiding. They know when they're not really maximizing work. I'm not talking about people not having a break and a little interaction with their coworkers and all that. But there is just so much time wasting. And then to your point, what makes that worse is that people are kind of after that. And and I wish that that would change. Well, the way the one of the ways I've thought about it is that there's no way that that apathy that that you get to you know, cordon off that apathy only to the domain of work. Like, like that's like, that's not going to spill that, that contagion, you know, that that cancer is not going to spread to the rest of your life, you know, to, to your, your relationship with your wife and your pursuit of her, you know, as a husband or your, uh, or your spiritual, you know, uh, obedience and, and holiness. There's, there's no way for that, that apathy and that, 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 that lack of, uh, of uh, um, ambition, you know, for that not to to take hold in your life in other ways. Well, and Larson, you hit on something that I think is crucial there with that word ambition. Yeah. You know, just as we have had a tendency to only focus on the dangers of wealth and to even demonize success sometimes in the church, I think a lot of times we've taken a very negative view of ambition, whereas, the, you know, obviously there can be selfish ambition. Ambition can be ungodly. But there's got to be a place in the Christian life for a holy ambition. Uh, again, going back to the original creation mandate to subdue the earth, to extend our dominion over the creation. And, uh, and, and I think that ambition, that drive, that sense of I have a mission, I have uh, you know, things that God has, has called me to do, uh, goals that I want to accomplish over the course of my life. Um, a lot of times I think that's, that's missing. And if you talk about that, then uh, people think that you've, you've left behind what are you know, supposedly more spiritual pursuits. Whereas I would say, no, that, that's, that's right at the heart of the Christian life is being ambitious, being driven, uh, desiring to work hard. Obviously, there's also a, a Sabbath principle there that has to be respected. We're not uh, machines or robots. We're not designed to run 24-7. But, but, the, but the idea that we would be diligent, you know, you, you look at the book of Proverbs again, and you have this contrast between the diligent son and the slothful son. Right. And uh, we live in a culture that is, um, 
that is that is full of sloth and even glorifies sloth, and and that that is a way I think that that is a huge part of the crisis that we are uh, currently facing in our culture. I think. Yeah, and I think if I can um, even separate a little from the broader evangelical world, which I think is primarily really guilty with a lot of things that we're talking about. Yeah. And then when they get drilled down deeper or more specifically into the reformed world, I think sometimes in the reformed world versus the evangelical broad world, that what is really kind of sloth and a celebration of non-ambition is then sort of pharisaically glorified by turning it into this idea that one is a particularly good husband or father by being very poor in their career or right. being very uh, unproductive in their right. work. I don't know that very many people would word it that way, but I do think it's a fair and, and appropriate encapsulation of what is often the implicit message right. that there is a, a war between your work and your family mm -hmm. and that your family needs to win that war. Mm -hmm. um, well, if one is setting it up that work and family are in war, mm -hmm. who is going to ever say anything different than that? Yeah, my family should win the war. Somebody could write a book saying your work should win the war over your family. Mm -hmm. And then someone's going to have to write a book about how family is really important. Right. But, of course, the problem to begin with is that your work and your family are not at war. Right. And that, I think, is the construction that has to be redone. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, there's a lot of work to do, and it's almost a, a little bit different of a message, a different of a need within certain parts of the unsaved world, within the broader evangelical, non-reformed world, and then I think even within a more confessional or theologically astute world yeah. and all three have problems and all three need to be addressed in a slightly different way well yeah, i think right. that, yeah. oh, go ahead rich well i was just gonna say i think that's exactly right and i think that uh <clears throat> the, the I, I i think one i think one way that men have to look at it is i pursue my vocational success for the sake of my family it's not in competition with my yeah. family but one of the things i'm called to do is make provision for my family and so that's part yeah, of it. And I, I think, you, Pastor, you, I would I would still say a caveat is important that we make we, we devote ourselves to our work partially for the benefit of our family. That fulfilling our 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 mandate to provide is very important and right. legitimate and necessary. Yeah. And yet there is a kingdom calling, a vocational calling, a creation mandate of stewardship, of Absolutely. growth of dominion that that is even above and beyond the mere utilitarian benefit to family yes i would totally agree well and if if you wouldn't mind i i would i would like to put forward the the conversation you know the word economics the greek word economics is household management and and the 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 work that that cr wiley's done in his book man of the house really i think does a wonderful job of of helping helping demonstrate that that the that the household is the the fundamental institution and that the household itself is and should be a productive enterprise that it is a it is a kingdom it is a uh, an economy it is a a uh, calling uh, and so so it's really the two are really not even it's not even appropriate i think to to try to pit the two against each other and i often talk about how a, a the idea of a wife 
coming under submission of her husband, that that word means to come under his mission, you know, submission, coming under the mission. So, so, so the mission, the calling of the household is a family affair. Well, well, yes, and and you know it's it's interesting because um, I try to unpack a lot of this uh, theologically in the work I do in economics, uh, and and the family is the pre-political unit, and it's a pre-fall unit, mm-hmm. and I don't believe that we would have a state, um, a civil magistrate apart from sin entering the world, and I know that we would have a family apart from sin entering the world because we did, right? <laughs> so, right. Right. Um, but the other thing that was pre-sin or pre-fall was work. Yeah, that's right. And and so although you are right, the the uh, voca- the translation about um, the word from which we get economics is translated household management. Um, I think the concept of economics is um, even. Uh, more than just the family connotation, mm-hmm. that sure. the notion, uh, the notion of humans acting, and that they are acting as individuals made with dignity in the image of God, mm-hmm. that that carries with it a uh, much like the miracle of the Trinity, and uh, that there is one God in three persons. We ourselves function as individuals that have unique and individual dignity. And then yet at the same time function in the concept of community. Mm-hmm. And so this tension between, let's say, um, a Marxian view that or a collectivist view that would attach people's dignity totally to their belonging of in the state or belonging in some collective bigger than themselves. And on the other hand, a hyper-individualism that would seek to disconnect us from mediating institutions or from communities or churches or families and, and sort of represent this hyper-individualistic view. I think both are flawed from a Trinitarian theology yeah. standpoint. And in economics, that becomes profoundly important because all at once we gain this tremendous understanding of mankind as individual and social. And in the family construct, you get the building block of civilization. And if people would like to know what GDP would be over the last 7,000 years without family, mm. I'd be happy to tell them they would not be very happy with the standard of living. Yeah, yeah. that's right. You know, David, um, I, the last several years, I've started to hear several uh, things in conservative circles. That, I mean, the kind of circles that I'm in that probably, you know, all of us are in. Uh, and and it's interesting because they're a real departure from a lot of the things we've discussed here in terms of a, of, of a free market and that kind of thing. So, for example, one thing that, that I have heard, uh, which typically has come from the left, but now I hear people who are more associated with the right saying it, is that capitalism is the enemy of the family. And that capitalism, by turning us all into workers and consumers, has undermined the family. So, you, you know, you look at our culture today, obviously the family is in shambles when you look at whether it's divorce statistics or uh, the, the, the fact that so many people don't get married at all uh, or lower birth rates, uh, all kinds of ways in which you could say the family is in really bad shape in our culture. And there are people who want to blame free market or the, capital, or, you know, the capitalist system uh, for that. What, what, what do you say about that? What, what do you think about that? 
Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are just fundamentally ignorant as to what capitalism is. I don't particularly care for the word, but what people mean is a, a market economy, right? Free enterprise. And so they pit two things as against one another. And yet, if you back up and say, what is a free market? Mm-hmm. And, and you define it as humans acting. And, and as a Christian with a particular view of anthropology, I believe that the way in which they're acting mirrors the way God created us to act, that we act with certain rational faculties, we act with reason, that we are embodied creatures, we have souls, but we do have live and exist in the physical universe. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that we uh, have moral responsibilities that are put onto us, that we have an eternal destiny. There, there's a lot of aspects about the human person. And when someone says, okay, well, the market economy is, is in tension with the uh, idea of family, um, I, and I say, if there's just two people on a desert island and there's five bananas and five oranges, how long will it take for those two people to start the process of mutually cooperating to figure out how they're going to allocate mm-hmm. the scarce resources? You know, who likes bananas more? Who likes oranges more? How can we work together to get more firewood? You know, do these different things. And by the way, what uh, about that is sinful? Mm-hmm. What about that is problematic? Now, someone starts stealing oranges or someone starts lying to someone about firewood um, or trying to kill someone else or exercise coercion and theft. So if all one means is theft, fraud and coercion are problematic to the family, to civil society, I would, of course, agree. Um, And I demand the rule of law as uh, co-present with a market economy. But if one wants to say that the mere act of humans acting... Mm -hmm is itself problematic, then I get very, very lost. And they say, of course, that's not wrong. But the problem is you're, you're being ignorant. What happens through time when it's not two people on a desert island is that the complexity of the matter, uh, people acting in self-interest, serving one another, meeting the needs of humanity, that these things then lead to something that becomes anti-family. And, I, and again, what I think happens here is the constant mistake of people blaming um, abuses, blaming various sinful behaviors, and, and instead of holding the blame where it belongs, translating it to the uh, very idea itself that we are, in fact, in fact violating. Mm-hmm. So the analogy I've come to use, because it's, it's nobody is ever willing or comfortable to go after the family, I suppose for now that's a good thing. But those in the church who would make, or in conservatism, would make the argument that capitalism and market orthodoxy and whatever word they are trying to turn into a pejorative, by the way, right. that those things are odds with family, I say... Well, one of the purposes of family is to facilitate the raising of, chi- of children and to have a place where there is a monogamous um, sexual commitment with family. Would we say that the very act of sexual intimacy is abusive or would we say that it is constrained, confined and in fact optimized in a family unit? Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to markets, we'll uh, all of a sudden be willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater, no pun intended. We, we will say the act of um, mutual cooperation and whatnot is, is the problem. And then 
of course, the real argument uh, destruction comes when you ask people, what is the conclusion? What do we do about this? Mm -hmm. You think markets are at odds with family. So what would you suggest? And as soon as I get an answer that does not default immediately to the state, I will let you know. But that (laughs) is the irony of ironies is that we think markets have created some sort of abuse and then we're willing to prescribe the state as the remedy. Uh, If that's not power religion by another name, I don't know what it is. Yeah, that's really good. That's I like your analogy there. So, So what about then those conservatives who want to use the power of the state ostensibly to support the family, you know, pro family policy of some sort? Um, even if that means in some way interfering with or regulating the market? Well, I don't um, believe that the the state is the most natural uh, arbiter of how to go about regulating this other than in the context of fraud, theft, coercion. But let me make a very market-based argument for that. One of the principles of conservatism and a sort of Burkean notion of markets that wants to juxtapose freedom and virtue. The market economy has to be rooted in an appreciation of liberty. And I believe that that becomes impossible when it gets separated from uh, foundational principles of morality. And so the argument I would make that many right now in this quote-unquote new right are walking away from, they would view it as an asset allocation that we needed in the past 50-50 freedom virtue, and now we need maybe 80 virtue, 20 freedom, that we need to reweight our our emphases. But my point is that you have none of the one if you forfeit the other. That you will not hold on to virtue if you sacrifice liberty. But the Hayekian and market-based argument against the state doing central planning and the administration of the market Mm -hmm. is the same argument I'd make against the state doing central planning in the administration with family is that they lack the knowledge, the time and place circumstances um, to do so effectively, that knowledge is dispersed in in such a way throughout society that no central planning actor can ever possess the ability to properly do so. But I also think it's a forfeiture of of domain responsibility, of sphere sovereignty. I don't agree that the state is the actor who is primarily tasked with uh, uh, protecting the family. Now, there's certain areas where that is that that is untrue, that we recognize certain issues to do with the safety of children and and so forth. I I don't want to deny that there's some gray areas on on the margin. Even then, by the way, Pastor, I would always default to subsidiarity. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand why we're talking about this as a Washington, D.C. issue. Best case, it might be certain local township type type administration and rules and whatnot. But uh, yeah, as a general rule of thumb, it's very easy for us to want to go to the state to uh, fortify the family when we've decided that the church is totally impotent to do so. Yeah, that's really good. The the other thing that I hear uh, from a lot, you know, a lot of conservative circles is that the real problem today is not uh, status tyranny. It's big government. I mean, it's, it's not so much big government as it is the big corporation or big tech. And so we need to have 
the state to step in and protect us from big government, from big tech, um, which is odd to me because it seems like they're <laughs> they're kind of in it together. But you, I, I do hear that kind of thing uh, that it you know it's the it's the globalized corporations uh, that are the real menace uh, now. And 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 what's your take on that? Is is do we need to have any concerns about uh, the size and scope and power of Google or Amazon or Apple? Uh, are these corporations uh, the natural outgrowth of the market? Uh, are they really creatures of interference in the market to begin with? How, how should we view all that? Yeah, I think actually I would have a little nuanced or different answer for each of those names from one another. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that there's a monolithic response about all three of them. Um, as a general rule of thumb, I think that size can become problematic because oftentimes size in the market gets married to the coercive power of the state. And so when conservatives do not do their job in defending markets by um, speaking uh, out against cronyism, um, I think that there is a problem. And to the extent that some of the power of big tech has become a byproduct of um, the state giving it that power and working against competitors, I do have a problem with that. But ultimately, things like the word monopoly or monopolistic concerns have to be tied to some damage to the consumer. This is an old legal principle Robert, the late Robert Bork was very known for. Uh, it'd be very difficult for people to argue that Amazon as an e-commerce retailer is damaging consumers. I think most people would argue that the consumers benefited tremendously from the convenience, the lower prices, the uh, almost extraordinary uh, buyer recommendation sensibilities. And so then people would say, okay, but their web services and some of the other extensions of their business can, are problematic. And, and when you look at um, Google, there's privacy issues and, and with, with Facebook, uh, there's concerns with, you know, uh, protection of children and whatnot. So there's sort of different categories of areas. But my, my answer without being able to unpack all of it here in our time is that I don't believe that size is in and of itself the problem. Mm -hmm. um, it is when size comes about because one has... Uh, harness the power of the state to protect their business, where essentially they build and build and build through innovation and tenacity and a successful business model and execution. And then getting to the top of the building, they kick over the ladder and use the state to now start regulating away right. um, upstart competition. And then they pretend like they don't know how they got to the top of the building and protect and build a moat around their business. Right. So there, there's a lot in there, but I do, I do think it's wise for us to not jump to the emotional response of, I hate big tech, therefore big tech needs to be broken up and yet not assume naively that there aren't concerns <clears throat> because I generally think that it's a good uh, impulse for us to be skeptical of power. Yeah, that's good. And I'm going to kind of pivot this because um, there's there's one other kind of area I'd like to talk to talk to you about, but I think it's 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 also very related, and that's the issue. So there's kind of two issues, and you can kind of jump into either one. One is on, on this topic: um, should Christians be building businesses with 
the goal of exiting, you know, with the goal of of giving them over to private equity and or venture capital. Like, is that the should that be the goal for Christians or should we have a a generational kind of uh, horizon uh, for our economic endeavors? Um, so that's maybe one 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 question. And I'll, I'll kind of tack on to that. The second question, which is which is that I think. Um, one of the problems I think we have with money is that um, it's not necessarily with wealth. I think wealth uh, in the form of property always comes with attendant responsibility. So if you own a house, you, ha- you have the responsibility to take care of the house or it will lose all of its value. If you own a car, you know, you fill in the blank, you know, property or owning a business, you have to run it. Right. Um, but as soon as you exit, you're, you're converting the value at that moment into cash and you're basically severing all of your ties to the, the, the property um, and, and cash, big lumps of cash all by themselves tend to just sit there waiting for you to, it, temp, tempting you to, to blow them you know, and use them in, in, in bad ways, right? And so, and so I think one of my ways I've thought about it is I think Christians should be interested in acquiring wealth uh, and owning property um, and should not be chasing the get rich quick kind of mentality of I, I want to work hard so that I can I can exit and and end up with a big lump of cash um, and, and, and the, the, the saddest part of that whole story to me is that it takes virtue to start a company and then some private equity company gets to sort of sever the tie between the virtuous people that built the business and take kind of the value, the current market value and go, you know, do their thing with it. So anyway, there's, there's, there's like three or four different things in that, in that little rant, but I'd love to hear you kind of respond to any of those thoughts. Yeah, I, I kind of disagree with a lot of them, but not really what I think you're getting at, but what, um, some of the assumptions behind some of it. First of all, I I will say this. If somebody is starting a business already thinking about him doing this for the purpose of selling it to private equity, they have almost no chance of succeeding. Um, The better question, I think, is whether or not it's appropriate to once you have built a successful business to think about various aspects of exit and monetization, including one being a sale to private equity. And um, because I don't think a business that uh, you start already thinking about the exit generally goes really well. You know, I I don't think a basketball player is going to play a great game if they go onto the court saying, all I'm thinking about is getting to the locker room afterwards. However, um, to the other question of whether or not uh, exit can be an appropriate thing, I think that there is a flaw in the logic that, well, when you sell, you then have cash. Yeah. That, what is done with that cash? Mm-hmm. Um, almost anyone I know who has successful exits is redeploying into a new venture. Right. They have sold one business and are starting another. And I think it's a sort of cycle of entrepreneurial yeah. talent and opportunity. Most entrepreneurs, not all, sure. are serial entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I think that that can be a wonderful thing for capital resource allocation um, to to find a profitable exit from a business that then is is diverted into a new passion or new opportunity or what sure. have you. 
But I also think that um, people need to understand what private equity is. Private equity is a term we use to describe investors who are allocating capital. The vast majority of a time private equity is buying a business. It is a company that private equity backs who is buying another company. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so if, if I have a lemonade stand and private equity is backing a really large hamburger stand and they can create a synergy and a better business and better delivery of goods and services and scale by using their resources that I am too capital constrained to do myself with my lemonade stand, but sure. they can introduce it into a broader ecosystem of their hamburger business. Right. Um, I don't. I, I view that as incredibly entrepreneurial and productive and, and forward thinking. And there and there are going to be failures and there are going to be success stories. But but theoretically, I don't think the mere existence of sure. a particular construct of capital markets is inherently good or bad one way sure. or the other. Yeah, I agree with that. The question is whether or not exit is the purpose of business. And I've already said my answer is no. But but in saying that, I don't believe that every person's role in a business must be perpetual. That in other words, yeah. one building up successfully using their time, treasure and talent to build business ABC and then moving their time, treasure and talent to build up business XYZ. I, I don't necessarily yeah. see a problem with that, but I think each individual situation is going to be different. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a CEO of a small business, and and I think about my role. I, I I've been really good at the early stage of our business and getting us, you know, getting us to a point of scaling. But but there 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 may be a time where I'm no longer the best guy to run this thing. You know, that 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 it's at a point where somebody with different experience and skills would do a better job. Um, I, I think the the question for me comes back to that concept of household and and the, and, and kind of the um, legacy and and sort of the family involvement perhaps in that in that mission you know that I have as as the kind of the head of the household um, and and I think uh, and, and I do think I would say um, to come back on the the point about people starting. Uh, companies to exit. I, I do think there's a lot of what I call startup porn out there uh, that's perpetuated by I'm not sure who, uh, but 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 it's it's a lot of the you know uh, let's just hustle and get stuff done, and you just do that work 80 hour weeks for for you know a few years and and you will exit for a bunch of money. And there's there's a lot of that kind of folklore, you know, in startup communities uh, in works you know. Uh, shared workspaces and that kind of thing. And so I definitely feel like I've seen that as, as a culture, at least a lot of people who are really, really interested in that and, and thinking that way from the beginning. And I think you're yeah, right. I think, I think you're right, but I think that the difference is that it is an extension of the same mentality we talked about earlier, where one who is not the owner of a business, but the worker of a business enters it, believing that the purpose of them working is to then uh, accumulate enough so that they can yeah. stop working. Yeah, and right. and with, with a startup entrepreneur, um, there are ideas that they bring to a certain point that it is entirely appropriate for them to hand off to others or to see a vision that can then, there, there's some businesses that require certain distribution or resources or most often capital that is outside of the capacity of the starter and founder right. and family. 
and and being able to see that scale to a next level um i think we need to celebrate some of those opportunities yeah but again i i think each situation is going to be a bit different if all we're talking about is a general mentality yeah. of doing something as a get rich quick scheme not only do i totally agree with you but uh fundamentally we don't have to worry about it too much because it's a yeah. futile endeavor Larson, something tells me you might be uh, the serial entrepreneur. <laughs> mm -hmm. <That laughs> hey, David, this, this has been really helpful. Obviously, we're, we're getting to the end of our of our time. We know you're you're busy. You got a lot to do. Uh, but uh, one more thing, I've got uh, a, a handful of terms here. I just want to throw them out, and you give me your reaction. And um, all right, so here we go. Ready? Yep. The Fed. Um. Is this a one-word game? No, or, you, you, uh, can, you can you can no, you, you can you can expound on the, it. The, the Fed um, is at the scene of the crime of almost every bad thing that happens in our economy, um, and yet the Fed is not an inherently evil institution. It is an institution acting um, well with ambitions that are far outside of its appropriate charter. Are, are there? And this is a side question, but are there are there? Um, problems with not having, say, the interest rate just set by the market. I mean, would that be preferable? Yes. Yeah, and interest uh, prices do not need to be imposed. They need to be discovered. Okay. And that includes the price of capital. So uh, having the Fed be in charge of setting the price or cost of capital is an inerrant problem. Um, and it is totally unnecessary. All right, let me give you another term here. Tariffs. Um, their taxes. So tariffs uh, all of a sudden have become a popular thing with a lot of people that have spent the last 30 years telling me taxes were terrible. <laughs> Funny how that works, isn't it? Okay, here's another one. Tariffs are paid for by the people that they are meant to protect. Classical liberalism. Um, thank God for classical liberalism. There are people that want to say that classical liberalism is dead. You hear a lot of talk, again, in Christian and conservative circles about being post-liberal, uh, which obviously that can mean a lot of different things. Uh, but uh, you, you think classical liberalism is still the way forward? Recovering yeah, everybody what Everybody I know who has been critical of classical liberalism is expressing their criticism in the constructs of a classically liberal society so that there is still enough of a framework of certain general freedoms of liberality in expression, religion, speech, press, uh, that they are able to use the tools of a classically liberal society to express how much they disdain a classically liberal society. That's good. Larson, you got anything? You're familiar with my father's apologetical construct of the unbeliever requiring the um, uh, preconditions of intelligibility that only belief provides. Critics of classical liberalism require classical liberalism to criticize it, it seems to me. Good, good way to put it. Great. Yeah. You're sawing Price. off the branch you're sitting on. That's right. Price gouging. Uh, price gouging as a moral term in the way that sort of um, Aristotle and particularly Aquinas talked about it, um, I think that there is um, a real possibility in the domain of sin, probably more than crime, where uh, price gouging can take place. But price gouging as a term used uh, 
simply to describe opportunistic price discovery and market pricing, um, I would disagree with. And so it is like so many things, including the very reality of, of life that required the book of Proverbs to be written. It has more to do with wisdom uh, than black and white, um, uh, you know, constrictive definitions. But price gouging is not um, the mere response in prices to certain conditions that might expand margins. But when one has a callous disregard for their neighbor, um, that I would I would consider that to be a violation of of our required virtue and morality. I got it. I got Mike Mike Munger talk about this, um, but his he he gives the example of a, a tornado hitting a, a a hot you know southern city and there and all the refrigeration goes out and you get some bubba's from you know from the next state over who rent a refrigerated truck and bring over ice and sell it for you know a hundred dollars a bag. His his argument is that 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 opportunistic pricing ensures that the people who need that ice most get it and so the lady you know who has who has insulin that has to be refrigerated or she will die uh she will get it and the guys who just want to cool down their their budweiser's are going to have to are are probably going to pass on it um so he makes a really good case for kind of the moral um the the moral uh, imperative, I guess, of, of price gouging or the it's, anyway. The, the, I, yeah, I it, yeah, no, no. I, I I'm very sympathetic to the argument, and again, we could we could kind of massage the vocabulary a little bit. Um, yeah. But but I I'm sympathetic to that general thinking. Yes, David, a couple more um, globalization. Yeah, globalization is a different word than globalism. And globalization is in, is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. Yeah. It, it just is. The ability, going back to Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, to build wealth in a nation through the law of comparative advantage is um, totally non-controversial. And a country that has certain natural resources it can sell to the rest of the world and doesn't have other natural resources it needs to import from the rest of the world. And therefore, those countries building one another's wealth mm-hmm. through playing to their own strengths um, in, in, in that scenario is, is one of the most basic economic truisms ever invented. Yeah. So if what mean, one means by globalization is merely the acts of countries serving the needs of their own country through better um, uh, execution of the law comparative advantage, then uh, not only am I not against it, but nobody is really against it. Um, however, if what one means by globalization is a globalism that seeks to uh, create a sort of monolithic understanding of culture, deny the distinction between different nation states, deny the difference between different languages, um, force sort of universal and global rules uh, upon uh, different elements of law and commerce, then, then of course I would disagree. The problem we face right now is people are totally unwilling to do the basic vocabulary distinctions between those two things. Seems like globalism or globalization gets blamed a lot for the fact that we've lost so much manufacturing in the United States. Does that matter? Does does it matter to us where things are manufactured? 
Well, you're holding crisis of responsibility, I think, nearby. And there's an entire chapter that would wonder what in the world people are talking about when they say we're manufacturing less. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that we are producing more with less output than ever for about 50 years, well before China joined the WTO. Yeah. Uh, technology was the biggest enemy of manufacturing jobs, yeah. is that we just happened to be able to get a lot more manufactured, mm -hmm. to produce a lot more with less output. And what that has done is uh, change a lot of the nature of the workforce, very similar to the Industrial Revolution. Some of these analogies are a little cliche and somewhat overdone, but they're not inaccurate. Um, you know, the automobile uh, took out of work people who drove horses and buggies, you know, yeah. that we, we are living through a, a pretty accelerated period of reinvention. And it does create certain uh, challenges and it also creates far more opportunities. But um, I think that the, the idea that globalization is the primary culprit for lost manufacturing jobs is, is not entirely true. And ultimately, um, it is b borrowing from Friedrich Bastiat's famous broken window fallacy. It deals only with part of the, the visible aspects of what's happening and not the invisible. Yeah. There is an entire big picture that must be understood economically, including those consumers who benefit, uh, the jobs that are created um, by having uh, less resources have to go to something where we have a weak comparative advantage and more jobs that can go, which are generally higher paying jobs into others. Um, the thing I don't want to be guilty of is a lack of empathy for the fact that there are winners and losers in the short term that come right. out of any right. economic transformation. Right. And uh, I have a, a tremendous amount of empathy for those who get displaced in this process. And yet I am confident that the solution is not industrial policy or protectionism, but rather embracing dynamism, embracing mobility and embracing reinvention as a way of dealing with economic reality. Yeah, that's good. Uh, AI. Computers that go fast. <laughs> Arson, you got any more? Uh, Bitcoin. Uh, one of the greatest Ponzi schemes in, in human history. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, how about a uh, passive income? Well, passive income is, is a fair term um, in the micro, but it is a fantasy in the macro. What I mean by that is... A person may be receiving income passively, if, uh, and the term is a dividend from a stock or interest from a bond sure. uh, or rental income from real estate, meaning that they are not receiving it as the fruits of their active labor. Right. However, the passive income to Bill only comes about because of the active work of Johnny. Yeah. Uh, there are no dividends. There's no interest income. There's no wealth creation. Um, their, their cash flow generation can only come actively. Even if one person's receiving it passively, someone else is creating it actively. And that's a law of production 101. Wealth can't be created apart from production. Good. Peter Zihan. 
or Zahan, how do you say his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah I like Peter. I, I thought um, his his book, which has been a very successful book and, and talks a, a lot about some of the complexities of a deglobalization. Mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of good stuff in the book. Some of it was a little sensationalistic. Some of it was a little simplistic. Um, I, I wouldn't consider myself a disciple, but I enjoyed reading the book and, and thought there were some, some good messages in there. Ron DeSantis? Uh, I think that uh, Ron has a very good chance to be the next president of the United States. Yeah. Very good chance. Well, I've got like 20 more words. You want more? I'm happy to give you more. What, tell me what you're looking for. Oh, I'm, I'm just, you know, um, <laughs> have you have you thought much about, uh, or, or have you looked into, I'm sure you have, distributism and, and kind of, could you comment on that at all? Just the... Hilaire Belloc and and Chesterton, and I know there are other thinkers that were in that world. Are you familiar with that whole kind of school of thought? I'm not. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think there. I, I don't. I haven't gotten to a point in in the reading that I've done of 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 those guys that I know they're they're definitely decrying the evils of industrialization, you know, um, and, uh, and 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 also the evils of crony capitalism. Um, but I, I just think they go too far and, and kind of blame the mechanism and, uh, and don't really have, I think, much of a solution. I, the way that the best way that, that Chesterton summarized it is that capitalism, uh, the only thing wrong with capitalism is that, is that we don't have more capitalists. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I, I don't, I'm not super familiar with these guys' own arguments in the particulars, but as far as a general sentiment um, that I think is generally rooted more in sentimentality than economic yeah. cogency, look, I, I, I'm open to being wrong, but um, I've never seen an exception to this. The flaws are generally from a poor foundation. The, the house is built on a shaky um, sand that they don't understand what markets fundamentally are and the anthropology of the human person and then there is a sort of era based evaluation instead of principle based and they look at an era in economic history that they liked more and um, then create a sort of straw man as to what it could be now and what it used to be. I'm not familiar with the particulars here, but it, like any, the term decrying industrialization is, is very problematic. Well, part of the problem is they um, never really... And most people don't decry industrialization when one of their loved ones is getting ready to go in for surgery. Yeah, that's right. And, and part of the problem, actually, right. is that the, the, the so-called distributists never really gave any particulars. It was more of an Answers. idea than, than anything yeah. that really worked out. Um, yeah. th- great, David, this has been great. Uh, so, so appreciate your work and your insight. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Thank you for having me and for the thoughtful questions. And I apologize in advance to anybody I offended today. <laughs> oh, you don't have to do that on our show. That's, that's kind of, that's just par for the course. Good, good, good. Well, thanks so much for having me, guys. The God a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also like The Good Life Podcast, where Matt Carpenter interviews historians, philosophers, authors, and more about how their work contributes to a good life.